My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone. That first property was bought in Womble. I still live in it now. We now own this property, um, which we're really proud of. Um, but even looking back, um, buying this really set us up for um, our next purchase and our next purchase and, and then going from there. This is Property Investory, where we talk to successful property investors to find out more about their stories, mindset and strategies. I'm Tyrone Shump and in this episode, we're speaking with Matt Sharp, buyer's agent and founder of Sharp Property Buyers. He shares how he dove into his property mindset early, taking heed from a well-known name and enlisting his brothers to save for their first home. But just like learning to surf, that's not to say he didn't have any wipeouts along the way. Sharp has a strong connection to the New South Wales Central Coast where he was born and bred. He still lives there now running his company Sharp Property Buyers. I have a very small team um, of three. Uh, Predominantly, we operate here on the Central Coast but we help people purchase all over the country as well. Uh, Grew up here on the Central Coast, played rugby league as a kid, surfed a lot as a kid and just did everything that most kids do here, to be honest. Mate, I live at Womberall, so I grew up at Womberall, moved around a little bit as a kid, um, but predominantly just moved around the Central Coast and also lived in Newcastle for a little bit and and overseas for a short stint as well. But um, yeah, grew up at Womberall. Now I reside here at Womberall with my young family, so love it. He takes us for a deep dive of a typical day in his life where he's usually up before the birds. I usually get up quite early. I'm up at about 4.30 in the morning. Um, I will train either in the gym or at one of the outdoor sort of um, parks here at this at the, on the coast. There's a really good um, area down at Terrigal where a lot of people train. So I'll train first thing in the morning, come back home, uh, play with my daughter for about an hour just to get her up and running for the day and try and help my wife out and then basically get stuck into work and I guess work for me will look like, um, you know, obviously researching um, areas and also obviously inspecting properties as well, um, making sure that our team's ready to go, um, prioritizing clients, speaking with clients, speaking with agents, sourcing properties, um, and then obviously presenting properties to clients too. So, um, yeah, and then if I can sneak in a a trip down the beach or a surf, um, I, I will do so, but just depending on how busy we are, I guess. That's nice. How long have you been surfing for? 
pretty well since I was as young as I can remember, probably around the age of seven or eight. Um, I don't surf as much as I would like to these days, um, just because of the family and the business and whatnot. But still, such a such a great hobby to have, um, just to get out in the ocean, uh, even if you're not a surfer, even if you want to just you know jump in the water or, or whatever. It's um, you know it's very therapeutic. I'm lucky with lockdown; like the beach is within you know less than a kilometer from my place, so. Um, even if they made that, <laughs> even if they made that radius one kilometer, I think I'd still sneak in. So it's good. The central coast and its scenery, people and vibes holds a special place in his heart. I grew up on the central coast. Um, you know, it's about an hour and a half north of Sydney. Pretty quiet, sort of a beach beach town, I guess, or beach region. Um, you know, I went to Terrigal High School, Terrigal Primary School, and. We just had a really tight-knit community here. Um, you know, played rugby league growing up as a kid, um, did the did the footy through the winter and then surfed through the summer and had the same sort of group of mates since I was a, since a, a very young age. Um, you know, and I, I guess here on the Central Coast, it's just very much a community vibe. Everyone sort of knows everyone. Everyone sort of helps each other out. And it's interesting because that's really helped me with my business today. You know, um, relationships that I have professionally now, I've actually had those relationships personally in some instances for, for over 20 years. So definitely helps now. And, um, you know, obviously there's some very successful people up here that I've known for a very long time, um, you know, both both personally and professionally. But, um, yeah, mate, great childhood. Uh, it was awesome living, growing up here on the Central Coast, I think. It was fantastic. Growing up as a kid, um, you know, I had a brother and then two stepbrothers, so a um, bit of a blended family, if you like. So, um, you know, it, it gave me a good opportunity to have different perspective on, on multiple things too. Um, so, yeah, and we moved around a little bit as well, but always around the Central Coast. So I think from a young age, um, you know, I understood the difference in properties and, and what different properties offered because one... You know, I lived in so many different places growing up and to, you know, sometimes I was heavily involved in, okay, we need to find somewhere else to live because we're renting a lot, need to find somewhere else to live. Okay, why is this one good? Why is this one bad? What do we like about this? What don't we like about that? So I think honestly, like from a very young age, I was, you know, I was analyzing and and looking at property through, um, you know, through a different lens and uh, I think it's put me in good stead um, to what I do today, I guess, and, and what I've done personally as well away from away from the business with my own investing. Like most kids, Sharp applied most of his energy to the things he was passionate about. Those passions followed him up the coast after he finished school. School is good. Um, I, I've got to say, I'm someone that will only really apply myself to things that I'm heavily interested in. So, um, as a kid, you know, I wasn't interested in, in a lot of the schoolwork all the time. Um, but it was great. Like honestly, you know, playing rugby league, team sport with with great friends that you know, are, are like you know, childhood friends that are, that are now adult friends was fantastic. Surfing before and after school, um, pretty relaxed sort of a vibe there um, at Terrigal at Terrigal High School. Um, uniform was sometimes optional, so you know it, it was good, mate. It was really, really good. Finished high school and moved straight to Newcastle to pursue um, a rugby league career, if you like, or to try and play rugby league professionally. Um, I I wasn't. I moved to Newcastle, played in the junior reps and the lower grades at the Newcastle Knights, but wasn't good enough slash 
yeah, I wasn't good enough to, to go on and play NRL, but I also probably didn't apply myself to the level that I know is now necessarily necessary to do well at that level um, now that I'm a little bit older. Um, but loved rugby league and all I wanted to do was obviously was to play NRL, but but never got there. Um, once that didn't work out, I sort of moved back to the Central Coast and, um, you know, picked up a, a job that I thought I was going to stay in for a long period of time. So I got into a corporate role. Um, I was in that corporate role for 12 years prior to, to starting the business. Um, but in that corporate space, you know, it got to, it exposed me to, you know, a, a new world, a very professional world, um, you know, what the corporate world's like. It's, um, you know, it, it's a good eye opener, right? And it was, in a, it was in a position that I thought I would have been in for a very, very long time and, and probably my whole life. But um, things change and ambition sort of takes over and perspective changes and experience changes. So um, obviously resigned from that, from that role, um, you know, a few years ago. His early job in the communications industry taught him a lot about the corporate world and how to communicate with people from all walks of life. I guess it gave me two perspectives, okay? So it gave me a perspective of what to do and, and probably what not to do, all right? So um, early on in that corporate world, things were, were, were fantastic. Um, the, the business or, or, the, or the company was very family orientated. It was always making sure that its employees were, were very happy and there was a really strong team camaraderie um, and everyone went above and beyond um, you know, to fulfill the, the cause of, of what we need to do or to make, make sure that we execute on that particular project. But I guess as the years went on, um, things started to deteriorate a lot and, um, you know, there were redundancies and, and people lost their jobs and then, you know, different management come in and, you know, it was more focused on sort of the dollar productive tasks and I, I guess it became more focused on um, profits and losses and less focused on you know how the employees were, were feeling and, and what the culture was like and I think with that it starts to really create a really negative um, environment um, you know people are worried about their own jobs and then people start to obviously you know hide you know not hide but they're not as open to share some of their knowledge and everyone fights over projects and no one wants someone else to get better of them so that environment started to become a little bit toxic and it was one of the reasons, I guess, why I started to look elsewhere um, for better opportunities. But the other thing that the corporate space did for me was it exposed me to, I guess, a lot of um, high net individuals and some people that are in um, very high pressure roles. Um, and one thing it did was I guess it desensitized me in a little bit just to know that those guys are human as well. and. You know, I, I used to be able to hold conversations with, you know, high-level managers within that corporate space, and then I could also hold really good conversations with, you know, some of our laborers or even cleaners within within the company as well. So it gave me that really broad perspective and gave me a good opportunity to be able to learn how to communicate to different people at different levels. It was here he learned the importance of happy employees. A principle he now applies to his own business. There are just countless roadblocks, and the attitudes just aren't always there. And look, I think I think one one thing that I learnt from the corporate space, and as well from my rugby league background, 
um, is you really need to keep your employees happy. And it's something that I have a really high focus on now. We only have a small team, but I'm always checking in, making sure everyone's happy, making sure everyone feels valued, making sure everyone feels a part of obviously the common goal. Um, and in, in big corporations, that can just be lost and then people become miserable, right? And it's not always... The incentives aren't always around dollar value, you know. It's um, it's far beyond that, and and sometimes in those corporate spaces, if you don't have the right leaders in place, um, you know, they can really, really deteriorate. Coming up after the break, we hear how rugby league has impacted his life in ways he never expected. Rugby league and, and I think just sport in general, it, it teaches you so much and I guess the, the it's helped me a lot as well, my background there in, in running the business now. How he kick-started his property career when he was barely out of school. My brother and two stepbrothers, um, we grew up, we're all around the same age and um, at a very young age, we actually decided to start saving for our first property. We find out what's in store for him next and why it brings him so much enthusiasm. I'm very excited about it to be honest. I mean, anyone that works in this industry, um, especially if they're passionate about it, um, uh, uh, never get more excited about a search, which which I don't and especially when it's your own search, it's, um, it's very, very exciting. And that's next. I'm Tyrone Shum and you're listening to Property Investory. Let's be real, deals that can yield 20 to 30% per annum do exist. Don't believe me? Well, here's a story about property development I invested in Victoria. This developer had the project fully funded beforehand but he and his family suffered a loss, a circumstance that led him to be unable to proceed with the development. So, I stepped in and in two weeks, we funded the shortfall allowing for the development to continue. Five months later, the development was refinanced and we received our funds back with interest. Yes, there are amazing opportunities in the property market like this one. So, do you want to get a better return with lower risk on your money? Then register your interest by visiting propertyinvestory.com. Sharp takes a step back to fill us in on his rugby league days. Although he doesn't play anymore, it's still a big part of his life. So, left school, had ambitions to play NRL, um, played low, like juniors at Newcastle Knights and then lower grades as well there but never good enough to play first grade. Um, but rugby league and then, sorry, then once that sort of dream was over, I come back and just played semi-professional here on the Central Coast. Also had some time overseas as well, played in New York in 2016 as well. But... Um, Rugby league and, and I think just sport in general, it, it teaches you so much and I guess the, the it's helped me a lot as well, my background there in, in running the business now, um, you know, the determination, the commitment, the grit, um, you know, working for, for a common goal, um, you know, staying neutral through the highs and the lows, um, you know, appreciating the little wins, working on the, the negatives, being able to, I guess, receive feedback, both positive and negative. Um, all of those things play a role when you run a business. And I think it's now starting to become, you know, more prevalent with big industries and big companies and big businesses 
employing, you know, ex um, players, whether they be, you know, soccer players, rugby league, rugby, whatever, ex professional athletes, and and certainly coaches um, becoming more um, ingrained into that corporate space and sharing their knowledge because um, you know the similarities are there; they're absolutely there. Um, but it, it was great, you know, um, created some fantastic memories, got friends for life from from both playing. You know, at that semi-professional level, um, you know, it's just, yeah, it's just good times. I don't play rugby league anymore, um, but I still coach. I'm still heavily involved um, with the um, with the Sydney Roosters with their junior development program here on the Central Coast. So, haven't haven't quite given it away yet um, in terms of um, you know the rugby league stuff. But absolutely love coaching, and it's just a good opportunity for me. To, to give back and to get away from get away from the business as well and, and just have some hobbies outside of um, you know outside of the real estate world there's so much great discipline and so many skills that kids can learn from rugby league with football skills being just one of them with the kids obviously we want to make them better footballers but you know a lot of the I guess a lot of the coaches within that um, within that program ultimately just want the kids to be to be better adults right that's that's what we're after and Hopefully, some of the, the the disciplines that we can implement into them right now with their rugby careers uh, may put them in good stead going forward in, in life. You know, making sure that they commit to, you know, getting up and going to work every day, for example. That that's just not common for, for some people. And and you know, rolling your sleeves up, doing the tough things, you know, throughout the day, as opposed to just doing the easy things all the time. So, you know, we're we're always looking to to improve the kids. Um, holistically away from just rugby league too. We take a step back in time to remember how difficult it used to be to access our money and how that wasn't such a bad thing at all. I love sort of winding back the clock and thinking about this. So um, it, it, I'm going to go right back here because I think it's important. So I mentioned my brother and two stepbrothers. Um, we grew up, we're all around the same age and um, at a very young age, we actually decided to start saving for our first property okay now when we first decided we were going to save for a first property we we decided that all four of us were going to buy something right that that was the plan when we were really young so what we did once my youngest brother was old enough and he had you know he was working full time we all committed to saving a hundred dollars a week into a joint bank account okay so that was a comp combined four hundred dollars per week going into one bank account and i mean i think Things are a little bit different now with phones and apps and everything like that. But sort of back then, when I was like 18, so it was like 15, 15 years ago. <laughs> Far out, that sounds. I'm still old. Um, anyway, um, you know, you'd have a joint bank account. But what we did was that in order to access that bank account, all four of us had to go into the bank sign to be able to um, withdraw money from. Okay, so it was, it was difficult. I guess the key message here, if anyone's listening, the, the key message is make that that savings account difficult for you to access, okay? So it was hard for all four of us to go into the bank and anyway, so so we committed to, to saving at least um, to buy our first house. Now, we did that, um, something I'm very proud of and something that really put me in, in obviously good stead going forward. So we ended up saving for around six or seven years but you know, as things happen, we all ended up going in our different directions. And I was the only one that actually took that money out and then, you know, and then bought bought our a house, right? Bought bought my first property, which um, 
obviously very proud of. It sounds like a great idea in theory, but how did it play out in reality? So my stepdad's an accountant and from the get-go, um, he was the one that sort of said to us, look, this is what you should do. Um, and I guess early on, everyone was committed to buying a house together, all four of us. Um, and look, along the way, you know, each brother, it, it wasn't all rosy, don't get me wrong. There were times when someone was going overseas and they wanted to access the money, but you know, there was three of us saying, no, you're not touching it and blah, 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 blah. But we did get to the point where it sort of, you know, it 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 had passed its use by date and everyone sort of agreed to, to take the money out and go their separate ways. But, um, you know, I, I think one brother was overseas, another was about to travel and another one was starting a family and, and I obviously wanted to um, to buy property. So we all agreed to, to, to extract the money and do whatever we wanted with it. So... Yeah, so we were saving for some time. I think it was around six or seven years. And during that time, um, I just did everything I could to get educated around the property space. And I mentioned that I played rugby league, um, you know, so we used to play on a Sunday. And while all my mates were out drinking and going out and partying or whatever, I wasn't able to do that because I was preparing for a game on a Sunday. So I used to sit at home um, and, and I'd watch Margaret Lomas's show on, on Fox. I just I stumbled across it one night and Mate, I've been a big fan and she's a mentor of mine and um, I used to watch her show on a Saturday night. They were like reruns and that really gave me good knowledge of, you know, how to identify what a good asset was, what a, what, what a bad asset was and, you know, the different variables with different properties. Does it, you know, does it have development potential? Is it in fundamentally, is it in a good area? What's the economy like? You know, how appealing is it? So that gave me so much good, I guess, fundamental knowledge that really put me in good stead to buy that first property and um, that first property was bought in Wombrel. I still live in it now. We now own this property um, which we're really proud of Um, but even looking back, um, buying this really set us up for um, our next purchase and our next purchase and and then going from there. So, um, you know, there's obviously always an element of luck in it Um, but we we did really well by just buying that first asset um, well and, and buying that right asset as well to start with. With his portfolio humming along nicely, Sharp's next steps are to add a unit block for some diversification. I haven't tried to reinvent the wheel or anything like that. Um, I'm a low risk investor so I do a lot of research on making sure that the areas are fundamentally strong. Um, we have a diverse po- portfolio across you know, multiple states in multiple areas with different dwelling types as well. Um, but I guess ultimately for for us right now, we have a, a pretty well a, a neutrally geared um, investment portfolio um, with different properties, you know, doing what they need to do, um, you know, for, for our um, investment needs. So one property might be high yielding, another one might be targeted for capital growth and, and, and obviously have a, have a lower yield. So Look, still building the portfolio and, and very close to buying something um, now, which I'm not, um, which I haven't done before, which is which is a unit block. Um, so we're going to see what that looks like, and um, I'm very excited about it. To be honest, I mean, anyone that works in this industry, um, especially if they're passionate about it, um, uh, uh, never get more excited about a search, which which I don't, and especially when it's your own search, it's um, it's very very exciting. That's awesome. So when you say unit block, how many units are you guys looking at at the moment? 
we're looking at somewhere between three and five. So nothing major, like I'm not in the position to do any major developments, but somewhere between like three, so maybe a triplex or four or five um, properties. So it's just about getting that balance right, you know, getting it in a good area at an affordable price that we can afford that isn't going to obviously overextend us um, and and isn't also going to handcuff us going forward. So um, the purpose for the unit block is is literally just for diversification, Um, you know, our portfolio at the moment is made up of freestanding homes, so we just want to mix things up a little bit and just make sure that we have that diversification and some options going forward. And look, there, there are certainly no plans in place at the moment to do any flips or anything. We just really want to just, you know, it's a long-term strategy for us and it's a, it's a, a set and forget and a long-term hold. He doesn't have any regrets due to his belief that everything is a learning opportunity and got started on his journey with one main idea driving him. If you scare yourself too much and do nothing, you're going to get nothing, all right? But probably the, the two um, decisions that we've made that have probably put roadblocks, um, I guess, in our, in our journey, one would be how we structured our loans early on. Um, and I won't go into too much detail because I'm not a licensed mortgage broker, but Loan structuring is very, very important. I'm sure a lot of people that listen to your podcast understand that now. I didn't understand that as a 25-year-old. I didn't, I didn't know that. Um, and it put us in a little bit of a, a holding phase when we were absolutely ready to, to buy again. Okay, so um, the loan structuring was, was one. Um, I just didn't ask enough questions and probably just didn't have the right mortgage broker at the time. One of our investment properties was um, it, it security was tied in with um, our principal place of residence. And for a long period of time, okay? So it was like, I think it was five years. So because they were cross-securitized um, for a long period of time, it didn't allow us to be flexible. It didn't really allow us to, um, you know, investigate other lenders um, without huge costs. Um, so that that was that was just a, a lesson that we've learned along the way. And, and again, if I hadn't have made that mistake... I, I'm aware of it now, but I probably, you know, I wouldn't have learned from it. So it's definitely not a regret. Um, and the other thing, the other mistake that I probably made was um, one of the properties that we bought um, is <laughs> we haven't had any issues there yet, um, but it's it's heavily impacted by some government housing. Um, and in my in my younger years, um, I didn't know how to, you know, properly do all of the due diligence that we that I now do today and obviously do for my clients but um you know there is a i guess there is a higher presence of of government housing um in and around the area now i haven't had any issues there at all the house has been tenanted it actually has gone up substantially in value as well but looking back now and the standards that i have now for myself and and obviously for the clients especially um that that probably wouldn't wouldn't meet our checks but can't say it's lost us any money um but yeah, it's something that I am mindful of going forward, thinking, oh, maybe that wasn't as good as it as I first thought. <laughs> there are no bargains. The government housing factor wasn't so much a factor as it was a lack of owner occupiers in the area. Obviously, owner occupiers are the ones that increase value for, for properties, right? They're the ones. So whenever you invest, I think that you should really be targeting areas that have high owner-occupier presence within those areas, okay? Because they're the ones that are house proud. They're the ones that want to live in the in that suburb, in that street, in that area, um, and they're going to pay a premium to live there, right? Um, so I guess for me, just thinking about it, how I do, it's like, okay, 
if I'm a local living in that area, how desirable is that street or is that little pocket of that neighborhood? Um, you know, the, the locals know um, the areas to go to and not to go to, right? Fortunately, I've been lucky that the property's, you know, it's never been vacant because the area that obviously I knew enough to, to look at low vacancy rates and all that sort of stuff and double check yields and whatnot. So the property's never been vacant. It's never really costed us a major amount of money. But the concern is there when I go to sell it in the next 30 years or whatever, um, how many how many locals are going to be interested to live in that little pocket? We will see. But I know it's happening um, all over Australia now. The governments are obviously selling off a lot of their um, their government houses. And look, my, my grandparents, uh, my dad grew up in government housing. So, um, you know, I know the majority of, of the people that occupy those homes are fine. They're working class. You know, some of them have just come upon hard times. So I'm not definitely not painting the you know, everyone with the same brush, but there is a level of risk there that, you know, I try to avoid today, but that's probably one of the, one of the lessons. But do I regret buying that place? Not really. Um, it was it was really cheap at the time. Um, you know, it's, it's had a great, it's got a great yield, um, you know, and, and, it, and it's never been vacant for, for two and a half, three and a half years. So, um, yeah, it's just one of those, it's just one of those things, one of those learning things. But Fortunately for me, um, you know, we haven't had any huge um, mistakes yet, but um, hopefully, hopefully, hopefully there's nothing major coming my way. But I'd like to thank Mar- I'd like to thank Margaret for that, Margaret Lomas. I think she, um, I think she really did put me in good stead um, to, to understand what what those due diligence checks are and 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 how to minimise your risk as best you can. Matt Sharp's story continues in the next episode of Property Invest Story. He shares one factor in his strategy and outlines why it's so important. The basics of, of our strategy is, look, we always buy in, in really low-risk suburbs, like high-performing but low-risk. We tackle the impact the pandemic has had on his local market and why it resembles an egg. Mate, COVID has just accelerated the Central Coast market by... 20%, nearly even 30% in some areas. Um, the impact has been real. He looks back on his childhood to reveal what made him so invested in property at such a young age. Something that I'm probably just starting to understand more as I get a little bit older now. And that's next time on Property Investory. If you love the show, perhaps you're now ready to invest your money in a low-risk, high-return deal. If you are, then SMS me your name and email address on 0499881040 to become a lender. There are amazing opportunities in the property market right now and I'm looking for lenders who want to invest their money for as short as 6 months. What are you waiting for? Don't let your money just sit in the bank. To register your interest, text me your name and email address on 0499881040. My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. 
Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone. 